0: This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. Today, an interview with James R. Jones. Our panelists are, Neda Magbule from the University of Toronto, Clayton Childress from the University of Toronto, Aliza Luft from UCLA, and James R. Jones from Rutgers, Newark. The panel was recorded on Thursday, April 11th, 2019.
1: This is Thursday, April 11, and we're having a sociology annex conversation with Dr. James R. Jones, Assistant Professor of African American Studies at Rutgers University, Newark. James is one of the discipline's most exciting early career researchers on race, politics, and culture, and in fall 2019, he's taking up a postdoctoral fellowship at Princeton's Department of African American Studies to work on his book manuscript about racial inequality in the congressional workplace titled The Last Plantation. He has a new paper titled Theorizing a Racialized Congressional Workplace in an Edited Volume on Race and Organizations, which is an extremely fruitful and exciting field of study at the current moment. So James, it's great to have you with us on the Annex. Thank
2: you guys for having me.
1: So those who follow you online might know you from your Twitter handle or your website, both of which are at Black Capital, and capital here is spelled with an O. Uh, what's the story behind that name?
2: Well, um, the short story is my name is James Jones, and I can never get an email or any type of account with my actual name. Uh, so I'm always forced to be a little bit creative. Uh, and so I remember when I, I guess, had my first uh, Messenger um, account on ALL, and I picked something stupid like French Jones. Uh, it's like, ugh. I was like, it was my, I was started taking French in the sixth grade. I was Aww. like, Oh, this is like this is something <laughs> that will stay with me for life. Uh, so I think I was a little bit more cautious when creating my Twitter as, you know, you're thinking about this as a, a brand, at least within an academia. Um, so it was for me, you know, my love of politi- politics, um, particularly uh, as um, it was happening in Congress. Um, and so it's, It's a way of playing, I guess, like an homage to that. But in many ways, what it is, it it evolved to like my understanding of my research identity. Um, So and the central ways in which Congress plays into that, but also Washington, D.C. as a space. Um, So I I see Washington, D.C. and also like Congress as a sort of black capital, um, as a sort of locus of uh, black politics. Um and that has been institutionalized. and I'm trying to understand how that sort of works um, contemporarily.
1: That's awesome. Uh, so something I've noticed is that you know, I think Black capital is an awesome Twitter handle and website, name uh also i think your titles are so good so i'm really curious to hear more about a couple titles um you know i mentioned your book and you have a 2017 piece in dubois review that's really amazing um so maybe we'll just like have you go through some of your titles and tell us about these papers so um maybe we can start with uh the black nod it's something you wrote about in that 2017 dubois review article the full title of your paper is racing through the halls of Congress, The Black Nod, as an adaptive strategy for surviving in a raced institution. So tell us both about The Black Nod and also just the paper overall.
2: Yeah. So it starts with me um, interning in Congress. So I went to George Washington University um, in DC uh, for undergrad. And I interned in Congress my first, my first summer on the Hill. Um, and then I worked in that same office for about a year and a half in college and it was like the most amazing job and it's it's just amazing working in congress filling your con- uh contributing to something bigger than yourself um and then it came to a point i think it was in my junior year i was like well i think i need to like branch out and do other internships in dc um and then i came back to work in capitol hill because uh, i like i needed to like fill that urge one more time but I decided to work in a different office. And this office was not headed by a, it was not diverse. There were only there was only one person of color out of like this staff of 10. Whereas um, my last office was headed by a black member of Congress. And it was like, the majority of people were of color. Uh, and it was just a really different atmosphere, one where I felt supportive, but in this new position, I didn't. Um, and, in short, like, I just hate, had a horrible experience that year or that uh, semester. Um, so what happened was I would try and get out of the office as much as possible. <laughs> 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 and so I would go do deliveries, uh, would go to the Capitol, go pick up a flag or something. And, you know, I started nodding. Or, and also noticing um, people uh, or black staffers nod. Um, and, but for me, it was this way of like surviving in Congress, uh, made me feel connected to other black staffers, um, and really gave me the motivation to like sort of survive in this white dominated space, which was unusual for me. Um, and then the next semester or the next year, I went to Columbia to uh, go to grad school. And I had a class with Peter Behrman. And I told him my idea. I like, yes, that's a great project that will get funded by NSF, which it did. Um, and I went and I did this project where I, one, observed um, black staffers um, nodding in the halls, um, and then I would talk to them about their experiences and what the nod meant. So I would sort of pretend to be someone who had no idea what this gesture was. Um, it's like, oh, I've noticed you just did something in the hallway um you just nodded to that person did you know that person and they were like oh well no um it's like "Well, do you do this with every black person they was like yeah i was like you don't know about this i was like no uh, and so in many ways they were like sort of tell me about i got them to tell me about this and then one person famously said you know as a sociologist you should know this you should act this should actually be your project um but it was a really a way of understanding the contours of congress as a racialized institution so, one, showing how it's a sort of white-dominated space, but also, in many ways, how race is sort of reified and policed, right? So, it was black staffers who were doing this gesture. And this gesture is not necessarily unique to Congress, but it was interesting in how it was police, right? This is something that you were expected to do. It was a part of their professional identity, um, something that um, helped to build social capital, and sort of reify racial boundaries and sort of end this way.
3: Hmm. Can I just say, this is such an incredible example of taking a personal experience and thinking about it sociologically and using your sociological imagination. I mean, this is what we try and get our students to do all the time, using your sociological imagination to reflect on your own experiences and your day-to-day life and things that might be going on and think about larger Meaning behind it and where those meanings come from. And I, I just love that. I love how you went from, okay, I had this experience when I was an intern doing blah, 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 and then I got an NSF and now I'm writing a book about it, you know, and thinking about racialized institutions. It's just such a fantastic example of using your sociological imagination to think about the world at large and beyond our own personal experiences. Absolutely. Sure. James, I have to ask.
1: So, in this, like, lingua franca of nods and and gestures, Mm -hmm. right? This kind of like shared repertoire. Tell me about what does a transgression look like within these scripts or within these repertoires?
2: So uh, the biggest transgression is not to enter into the exchange or this interaction. So it's not to nod. um, It's to avoid um, eye contact, right? And so you know, Goffman writes about how like establishing eye contact is pretty important, not only for sort of establishing an interaction, but by avoiding this, you're not allowing the person to be an equal. And so that was really interesting, the ways in which the staffers that I talked to, the black staffers I talked to, talked about what it meant when people didn't enter into these equalizing um, exchanges with them. So if there were Um, not black, oftentimes it uh, it demonstrated to them how they were invisible um, within this workspace. Um, But the other flip side to this is when other black staffers would not nod or engage in eye contact, Uh, they use this as a way to sort of draw boundaries about who was in the community and who was trying to advance the race and those who were not, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, you must not be down. You're really not for racial justice, Right. And you're you're not someone I actually want to be friends with uh, because you did not do this as a a, a person of our racial group. Mm
4: -hmm. And was that a combination of I would assume it's a combination partially of like people being new and not knowing and uh, some sometimes maybe people deliberately not engaging in the ritual.
2: So I think it's both, right? So in one way, it's um, it could be deliberate, right? Like, I don't want to enter into this exchange. I don't want to acknowledge you. Yeah. Um, but the other ways it was really interesting is that particularly uh, there was this sort of generational divide. And that I sort of found the data in which older black staffers, those who worked in Congress longer, they were very adamant about nodding. And this is a practice that everyone should do, mm-hmm. um, particularly to build social capital. Yeah. Um. And they were really upset when a younger generation of black staffers didn't do this. And so part of it was like them lamenting about how um, this younger generation didn't understand the problems, the persistent problems that the group was facing. But it was also those moments where you were sort of like chastised, like, oh, you, um, how come you're not nodding to me? You should be doing this. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're sort of uses in education is like, all right, you must be new to the hill. We nod to other black staffers here. This is how you're going to um, survive and like thrive in this space.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's an article that's available. Folks can get it through their favorite library. They could probably also hit you up for it if they're not able to access it. But for us, one of the perks of being able to host Soch Annex this week is that we got to look at a preprint of a new paper by you. And so mm-hmm. you circulated to us this new paper you have coming out. Um, you're taking you know, some of the things that you've elaborated so beautifully at the micro level, at the interactional level in your Du Bois review article, and you're starting to scale it out. And so the title of this preprint that we got to read is called Theorizing a Racialized Congressional Workplace. And you set up this paper by saying that Congress has been narrowly conceptualized by academics as merely just a political institution. Mm -hmm. So tell us uh, what the audience's appetite a little bit. Tell us how you're pushing back against uh, this framing of Congress as just a political institution in your paper.
2: Yeah. Um, so, ag- again, this comes out from my experience. One um, as someone who has worked in Congress and who's done research there. Um, and, you know, I see the multiple actors who are involved in policymaking. So it's just not congressmen, um, and but it's their staff. And these staffs are sometimes not diverse, but what I witnessed firsthand was the important roles, you know, the black political capital, of these staffers and trying to influence policies, and so what I've noticed, um, particularly in the literature on congressional workplace and Congress as a whole, is that we tend to not under uh, acknowledge these actors. Um, so it's doing two things. So one, it's not—it's kind of ignoring how Black uh, professionals, in particular, shape. Um, the congressional workplace and congressional operations more broadly. But the other thing that it does is that it ignores how Congress and lawmakers have actually structured their um, their workplace to make it for an unequal uh, experience for these staffers. So the these staffers help us to understand Congress in a new way, um, particularly in how it's racialized. And like, so they're both pushing up against the structure, and they are shaped and constrained by the structure as well. Mm-hmm. And so what the the paper tries to do is call out these sort of race-neutral approaches to understanding Congress in the congressional workplace, um, and really tries to show the ways in which race is this sort of constitutive and organizing um, force within the congressional workplace all the way into the beginning, right? And so... Um, Part of it is looking at not only how race but also social class shapes this workplace. So you take—I start in three, or excuse me, four critical junctures. I look—I begin with like the slave era, and so we look at how both um, enslaved laborers, black enslaved laborers, contributed to the building of the capital, but also how they were free blacks working um, and constructing this capital as well. And I use both class workers throughout the analysis to understand. Not only how uh, Congress is a racialized institution, but how it transforms, right? So, the big finding uh, or the big idea in the uh, race and racism literature is that racism, you know, it's ever changing and it must change in order for it to have some type of permanence within our society, right? And so, part of the ways in which, you know, um, Congress gets to change its image and appear more embracing or Um, is by sort of absorbing this middle class of black workers. Um, And it says, hey, we're diverse. So we have more black political staffers, right? This is actually a headline that came out in the New York Times a few weeks ago. And it's like, oh, this is great. Congress is more diverse, right? Even now we have headlines about this new Congress and it's the most diverse ever. But it's important to understand um, how the congressional workplace operates, how it's racialized. And so how you might have some Diversity at the top, but it's also important to look at the people who are at the bottom, and so particularly this um, the groups of service workers who are mostly of color, um, and who are technically are not actually even congressional employees because they've been contracted out. Mm -hmm. And as indicating as how Congress and or how race shapes Congress and the the operation of work with inside of its halls.
1: Yeah, your paper does an excellent job of sort of describing the way that labor is stratified within Congress, and you're doing this both across time, but you're also doing it across space. And I really appreciated your attention to physical space of Congress as racially segregated. Could you share a couple examples uh, from your research or from the paper about that, the kind of physical segregation?
2: Yeah. I mean, so again, this is something that was born out of my my internship experience. Right. And so looking at physical space within Congress. And so one of the jobs that I had as an intern, and I believe they still do it a lot, is I go get letters signed. So, you know, um, lawmakers want to protest the president or like a secretary, and they'll get all these lawmakers to basically sign this letter and they'll send it off. Um, So it's an intern who goes and gets these letters signed from members of Congress and their staff. And so I got to see how, you know, there was just different uh, demographics in different spaces. And, you know, white uh, offices led by white lawmakers would have uh, predominantly white staff. And lawmakers, black lawmakers, uh, would have black staff. And the same thing would go for Latino lawmakers and Asian American lawmakers, right? And so it's a very segregated space. Um, One thing that I'm, one paper that I'm working on now is looking at physical space in the terms of the cafeteria and Congress. And so I'm looking at particularly one case in the 1930s in which Congress sort of ruled that it was allowable to segregate based upon race because Congress actually wasn't a public space But it was a private space set up for the convenience of members of Congress, and so in this way, we actually have race uh, or racism codify into legislative rules. Um, But we typically don't understand this if we're not looking at um, a very narrow feature of what Congress does, which as a governing institution. But we have to look at it how as a social space, right, as a workplace, and the rules in which uh, maintain this um, this sort of social space as well. Mm -hmm.
4: And has that uh, kind of structural relationship, even in the cafeteria, I mean, has that ossified and you can still see, see that today?
2: Yes and no, right? So in many ways, I would sort of call it like a cosmopolitan canopy and like okay. thinking like Elijah Anderson's way. Sure. Uh, but so it's not that, um, you know, that this space is segregated anymore, but it's still stratified. And so uh, these workers are all of color. Um, And they also did have a much more precarious position within the congressional workplace. So they are not um, technically federal employees. They are contracted out um, by a third party. And so they do have a different arrangement. They make less and less money um, than they would as um, government employees. And so what's been interesting is that, uh, and the point that I drive on this paper is that the cafeteria is this really interesting site of protest. And so I believe it was in the 2016 Democratic primary or presidential primary overall, where you had a number of um, cafeterias workers striking because they wanted a living wage. Some of them were homeless. And they basically sort of argued, it's like you have all these people who are running for president and who work in this body and who we serve. And they're talking about promoting a living wage, but they don't do that for the people Um, who they basically employ and oversee. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an interesting site to sort of see how inequality works um, in Congress. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And James, if I can follow up on something you said, um, in some ways, like this paper and the paper that you're working on, they are helping us as maybe people who have not worked on the hill or who are not as familiar with the inner workings of DC it makes us reevaluate spaces like Congress or Capitol Hill and to think right how do they resemble other workplaces yeah. it's kind of stripping them right of some of their mm-hmm. specificity or their allure the kind of like West wing or veep notions yeah. we might have of it as like a special place but then also your overall book manuscript uh, it shows the nuance that in fact, like, you know, the title is the last plantation. And in many ways, Congress has shaped itself as a place that is above or somehow exempt from Mm -hmm. some of these sort of basic protections that we would find in other workplaces. So I wonder if you could sort of introduce us to your book and talk a little bit about this tension of Congress as at once a not special place to work that resembles many other workplaces, but also historically how it has been exempted from other things.
2: Yeah. So I, I got this question a lot when I was doing talks on the Black Nod. And there's like, well, there will be people say, oh, yeah, I've seen this there um, in these other organizations, edu- uh, institutions, universities. And so it doesn't make Congress special. And so there are many parallels between Congress as a racialized in- institution and other organizations um, worldwide, right? So there are these sem- similarities and like the things that I'm witnessing, in many ways, are not that different than other white-dominated institutions. Uh, but I think the thing that really makes Congress ex- exceptional is its ability to s- exempt itself from the rules and to impose itself um, to and sort of impose a racial order on society, but again, exempt itself from it. So, like my book project, really takes. Um, it starts from that exemption, right? And this is the idea behind the last plantation. So in the 1970s, Congress, or actually lawmakers and staffers, started calling Congress the last plantation because it exempted itself from the 1964 Civil Rights Act, right, which had um, uh, rule status-based discrimination as unlawful. So basically, you were not allowed to discriminate based upon race or gender, in any part of American society, like, this is unconstitutional, I mean, or, like, unlawful, and, you know, we're going to have a new racial epic. But in that new racial epic, the only place where you were allowed to act with impunity was, was Congress itself, right? So it, they sort of reasoned that Congress was the last plantation, right? It was the last place where this could occur um, in this new uh, period. And so, this idea of the last plantation circulates from the 19, like, mid-1970s until 1995, when Congress finally closed this sort of loophole. But the ways in which um, this, this idea of the last plantation was talked about, at least from lawmakers, was all about this loophole, whereas Black workers used this plantation to talk about a broader or a much more broader system of racialized work. And so when I use The Last Plantation in the book, um, I sort of discuss how it originated, but talk about how this was a much bigger phenomenon that both predated this designation, designation of The Last Plantation in the 1970s and both outlasted it, right? And so the idea is that Congress is constantly transforming itself as a racial institution. And so we need to actually understand one, that it is a racialized institution. And then two, how does it operate um, across time and space in different ways?
3: So I have a question because I was thinking about Congress and, and the ways in which it is representative of other racialized institutions and the ways in which it isn't. Mm-hmm. And one thing that came to mind was thinking about the military is actually one of the very first institutions in American history that was, formally integrated mm-hmm. you know way before brown versus board of education in 54 the military is legally integrated in 1948 mm-hmm. and and that's another branch of government, you know, the military and thinking about, um, yeah, I, I, so it made me think about different extremes and in how organizations and institutions are or aren't racialized. And I would love to hear you speak about institutions that you think are similar to Congress and those that are different, perhaps on a spectrum of practices of racialization that you identify in your work.
2: Yeah. So I actually did a talk at New Brunswick um, not too long ago. And what was interesting being in a room with political scientists, oh, well, Congress in many ways um, resembles all of these different, you know, legislatures across the world, right? So this is not necessarily – a u.s phenomenon but something that's worldwide in the ways in which legislatures exempt themselves from the rules but in many ways i think a strong parallel to Congress as a racialized institutions is and thinking about their racial history is with universities um and so i think it really begs the question about what these institutions do um and so on the surface you know universities are all about teaching And, you know, Congress is all about governing. But another way to look at them is how universities and how Congress both create and structure our racial order. Mm -hmm. So Craig Wilder's book is like, you know, I I love it, Ebony and Ivory. And Mm -hmm. so part of the argument is that, you know, all of these elite universities that we have have a racist history. The other part that tends to get ignored from his book is how not only were these, these universities have a racist history, but they were actually influential and essential to starting our creating our racial order, right? Through the production mm-hmm. of racist knowledge, mm-hmm. um, through uh, supporting the institution of slavery. Uh, in the same way, I think about Congress in this way, right? So Congress not only has a stratified workforce, but it's, you know, it's producing uh, racialized laws, which could either, you know, create racial categories or reward whiteness or, you know, punish those who are in non white categories. It's also about, it's also producing knowledge. And the other thing that I'm starting to develop in this book project is how it's really about cultivating a group of political professionals who run our political system um, and who turn out to be majority white, right? And so, in this sense, it's not necessarily about like they what they do on the surface, but it's how they structure the racial order, and you know, Congress has a similarity in, in many ways to universities in that they're playing a powerful role um, in shaping our racial order that's not typically noticed or acknowledged.
3: It's it's really great. I'm really looking forward to your book.
2: Yeah. And one of the
4: really exciting things about it, too, is uh, we get both sides of that, of like, uh, you know, Congress and the power of Congress, but also just is a fairly mundane, uh, everyday space. And within that, uh, uh, you know, one of the arguments I really loved about uh, the new article is that. Uh, just at the level at which uh, you know supposedly mundane organizational decisions within a racial, racialized organization have real consequences, uh, one of yes. the ones that really stood out to me that I wanted to hear more about was uh, legislative staff organizations mm-hmm. uh, and decisions around those uh, and just kind of what those are. Is that something you could talk about?
2: Yeah. Um, so this comes out of the sort of uh, 1995 Congressional um, Accountability Act. So so this is actually pretty interesting. So at the same time that Congress has ended, you know, um, this exemption from, you know, federal workplace law, so it applies it in 1995. And so in many ways, what happens is that the designation of um, Congress as the last plantation is like formally ended, right? And there are a whole bunch of quotes in the book about how there's this sort of celebratory moment in Congress where it's like, oh, we've done it. We've stopped becoming a racist institution. We're just like everyone else. But mm-hmm. also in that year, what Congress does under the leadership of Newt Gingrich is that um, it rules that legislative staff organizations can no longer use space um, within um, Congress and they, that members of Congress can no longer fund these out of their accounts. So basically what these legislative staff organizations are, are these sort of mini organizations or collaborations between different caucuses and they sort of produce, you know, laws and bills. Um, So legislative staff organizations serve an important function in Congress, um, particularly for those who have... Um, or occupy a more subordinate role within Congress. So if you if you are a powerful member of Congress, you will have a bigger staff, um, you will have a position on a committee, and you will have more staff people to sort of develop your political agendas. However, if you are on the margins in, in Congress, you have less resources to influence the formal political agenda. And so what legislative staff organizations do um, is allow different members of Congress to sort of pull their resources together to influence the, the formal policymaking agenda, right? So particularly the most famous one of the, uh, these organizations is um, the Congressional Black Caucus, right? So black members, of, black members of Congress would collectively donate out of their resource accounts um, money to hire staffers who could coordinate different political agendas and then have that to um, use to sort of influence the formal political agenda. So, you know, every year the Black Caucus has its own budget, right? And so that they sort of mount against whatever the dominant budget is offered by, let's say, a Democrat or a Republican, committee, but you have this other budget that's mounted by, um, let's say, the Black Caucus or even the Progressive Caucus has started doing this. Um, but basically what Gingrich did was um, outlaw the use of this, right? So they couldn't have space in and, and Congress and you couldn't use your funds to do this, right? They, he sort of said that this was sort of wasteful. Um, but in many ways, what this was, was an attack on the work of women and people of color inside Congress to actually um, challenge the organization of work um, as a sort of racialized institution in Congress. But I think the point that uh, Clayton sort of brought up is that, you know, often, particularly within, I would say, American political development, there is this attention to critical junctures um, and so we need to look at those big moments where things transform, right? And this is also in the institutions literature, right? These are the things that like, really turn the organization to move in this sort of critical direction, and we need to understand that. Um, my position as like, a qualitative researcher is that we also need to look at those, the moments in between those critical junctures, right? So they're often mundane but they, are, they help us understand how we get to those critical junctures, right? Um, but it's in those daily um, daily interactions and daily experiences, right? This is like you know, a part of like the black nod. Yeah. Um, but this is also something that is evident in other sociological research. So one paper I would highlight is from Paolo Parigi in I believe it's AGS in 2016. Um, so he's one of the other few sociologists who are studying Congress. And so he has this great paper in which he's looking at where members of Congress live and how that affects policymaking. Um, so in short, um, in the 1840s, you know, members of Congress lived in boarding houses. And basically what he showed is that uh, where you lived and who you lived with uh, mattered more than your political party on how you wouldn't vote on particularly um, partisan um, issues. So again, it was like, you know, this idea about who you know and um, social capital that's actually driving these sort of electoral outcomes um, and not these other markers that we would typically associate with um, with, with voting.
1: Wow. Uh, James, I think that's actually like a perfect way to, to go to our last question, uh, which is something that I think uh, must be on the mind's of the listeners, given that they've heard your background is that you worked on the Hill before coming back to academia. Before that, you were a political science major as an undergrad. And so how did you end up getting your PhD in sociology? And I feel like in some ways, the richness of that answer you just gave us maybe is a clue into what drew you to Mm -hmm. SOCH, but I'd love to hear more.
2: Uh, Well, in short, you know, I love love politics. um, And so I had just gone through all the classes in uh, the political science department that focused (laughs) on inequality, uh, that focused on, you know, black politics, uh, minority politics more broadly. And there was just it was just uninteresting, um, to be honest. Um, And so at that same time, I had taken my first sociology course in my freshman year, the sociology of AIDS. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And like, I went to college not knowing what sociology was. Um, I did not know this existed, but this class sound, sounded cool. I started liking the professor, I took other classes with her. And, you know, every semester I would take a, a course in sociology. And it was like the best class. It gave me, it just was relevant for my world and understanding my world. Um, and so, you know, I was working on Capitol Hill and, you know, we staffers actually, you know, do realize or u- utilize uh, sociological research. Uh, and so I was like, you know, this is helpful. Um, and so I want to be a, a part of the research that you're using to change policy. And so I went to sociology for grad school.
4: And have you uh, seen some impact from your work since you've come back to sociology?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting thinking about, you know, our earlier conversation with, you um, doing more public work. And like I have seen evidence of this, right? So it it has implications about how I do research and how I'm seen in the field now. Mm -hmm. Um, But in 2015, I wrote a policy paper on the top staffers in the Senate. And basically what I found, surprise, surprise, is that it's majority white workforce. Um, And staffers of color only make up about 7% of the top staff positions in the Senate. So these are the chiefs of staff. These are um, communications directors, legislative directors, uh, and committee staff directors. The way that my respondents describe these positions is as this is rarefied error.
3: Mm.
2: You are setting the agenda when you're in these positions. However, people of color are locked out of this. And so there isn't any data on the racial demographics of the congressional workforce at all Mm -hmm. so even though it applied some of the civil rights legislation like the equal employment opportunity commission doesn't collect data on the congressional workplace Mm -hmm. so what i did was i i did a census on this and produced this data and it really changed uh the conversation on capitol hill about representation in part because i was applying data in which there were there wasn't um any data before this but you know Part of the impact was uh, that Senator Chuck Schumer actually adopted my policy recommendations. Mm-hmm. And so one of the most influential ones, I think was that he is in the Democratic caucus in the Senate and to a certain extent in the House are now releasing data on the demographics of, you know, who they employ, mm-hmm. which has been unheard of and has never actually happened.
1: That is so exciting. That's really amazing. And so I think uh, you're going to be top of mind for when we're thinking about, right, our rejoinders and our replies uh, when people say, right, there hasn't been evidence of sociology making that public impact because your research has penetrated that rarefied air.
2: Thank you.
3: Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. What a great way to come full circle. I wish we could high five each yeah. other right now. But, <laughs> yeah, just, and this is such fascinating work and it's so, so important. So I'm really excited about it and I'm excited that via the podcast, hopefully more people are going to learn about it. It's great. Mm-hmm.
2: And when does the book come out? Uh, well, I'm going to Princeton next year to hopefully finish it. Yay. Wonderful. Um, so shortly after that, hopefully.
3: Wonderful. Right. Awesome.
0: You've been listening to The Annex, a Sociology Podcast. Special thank you to our panelists, Netta Magbule from the University of Toronto, Clayton Childress from the University of Toronto, Aliza Luft from UCLA, and James R. Jones from Rutgers, Newark. We're on the web, sociocast.org Annex, on Twitter at SocAnnex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Thank you for listening.